Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 15th, and today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about how Republicans in Washington are already starting the blame game if Republicans fail to take back the Senate in November. And the main culprit right now is apparently Florida Senator Rick Scott, who, according to Tara's reporting, is screwing the pooch in his role as chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And later on, Tina Wynn is here to discuss Doug Mastriano, the election-denying Republican nominee for governor in Pennsylvania. Tina explains why Mastriano could be a headache for Republicans for a long time to come, even if he loses. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. With the midterms approaching, we're going to be talking a lot more about politics over the next few weeks. And I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri, who has written uh, about a interesting uh, piece of gossip that's been going around D.C. lately, uh, some shade, all surrounding Rick Scott, the Florida senator who is chairing the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is basically in charge of officially raising money and buying ads uh, in support of Republican Senate candidates and hoping to take back the majority from Democrats this November. But Tara, you wrote about this on Puck, and the headline is How to Lose Friends and Alienate DC. Just to step back a second uh, for people who don't follow like the ins and outs of these fundraising groups and all the campaign arms that- You mean regular people? <laughs> <laughs> what is Rick Scott- doing in particular that is pissing off Mitch McConnell, that is pissing off Republican Senate candidates. I mean, this is a this is a big deal. I mean, this could influence control of the Senate. Right. So Rick Scott came to D.C. and decided he wanted to be the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is like the meaty fundraising arm of the Senate. He raised about $181 million. And at first, everyone was like, this is great. This guy's really rich. He ran a hospital, made hundreds of millions of dollars. He was the governor of Florida. He can surely keep that chest filled with cash. He sort of came in and wrangled a lot of the establishment in D.C. And by that, I mean McConnell world. Because the NRSC was always a part of McConnell's operation. McConnell is the Senate majority leader. If they win the Senate, he gets to be leader again. This arm effectively helps to (laughs) ensure that he's a leader again. His chief of staff, Josh Holmes, was an executive director at the NRSC. And there was always this sort of, I guess, symbiosis between the two, the leader and the NRSC. But when Rick Scott came in, he was like, he saw this as a platform. He saw this as bigger than just raising money for cash. He put out his own agenda, the 11-point plan to save America, which backfired horribly. And he said he wanted to raise taxes on the poorest, which backfired horribly. He features just himself in some of these ads. He's really seen it as like a platform for himself, as an elevating tool in the Senate. You know, some people suspect that he's using the data and um, the small dollar donors and everything that he's collecting to eventually use it for his own presidential campaign. So it's kind of this thing where you have like the new kid comes into town who was just elected in 2019, I believe. He comes in and he's like, I want a seat at the table, taking the job that really no one wants to do, which is fundraising, running around traveling and giving money out to other people. And he's like, I'll do it. I have bigger plans for this. But in a way, he disrupted the establishment and how it works. He also 
there are tons and tons of consultants, like messaging firms, holsters. They all do work for the NRSC. A lot of them do. And he sort of centralized that as part of his cleaning house. He really gave most of the work to his the firm that did his governorship and Senate campaign on message. So that kind of pissed off a lot of people in town. You know, you take money away from consultants, they'll knife you. Let's be serious. He kind of pissed off a lot of people on a lot of different fronts. First and foremost, probably McConnell, but then also the consultants class that's connected to him. And he was like, I'm going to do it my way. It's better. And then when he's failing, they're all throwing, you know, rotten tomatoes at him. So there's so many, especially in Republican politics, it always feels like there are these like different families of consultants and it feels very tribal. Oh, it's totally clicky and tribal. Part of this is because like, when I was learning to cover politics, I was in South Carolina and there's like every consulting firm has its candidates. And like if you you have a certain candidate and they're running in a certain election or they're chairing a committee, that means they have influence and it means they control like advise and whatever. And so, like you said, McConnell had his people that usually step into the NRSC, Josh Holmes, Ward Baker, Kevin McLaughlin. And like Kevin's a good example. Like I've known Kevin for while and he was like senior advisor or ed of the nrsc like in 2014 and 2016 and 2018 and like there's just like institutional knowledge uh, whether they do well or not like mcconnell's people go in there and then on message always has like some big time governors and senators as on their client roster and because rick scott is now chairing the nrsc they get commissions and, and ad buys and you even write that the nrsc is like i.e. their independent expenditure arm is run by Joanna Burgos, who's also from On Message. And so like people's bank accounts and their egos are, are wounded when contracts get taken away and given to different consulting firms. And that feels like a lot of what's happening here. Totally. I think it's the story behind the story. I sort of heard from people like, it's kind of that he's operating in a bit of a vacuum because, because he's using his own people and he's creating new constructs. That there was a feeling, oh, we, we could have warned him to not put out his own 11-point plan that suggested raising taxes on the poorest people. What's interesting, too, is like the NRSC never, to me at least, you might disagree, like felt like a stepping stone for presidential ambitions. Like the RGA feels like a job where you're a governor, you are Greg Abbott or whoever else. Like you get to travel around the country. You're not in the Beltway. Like they can take soft money so they can raise big checks from big donors. So it like allows you to you know, travel around the country, meet a bunch of rich people and build a platform run for president. Whereas like the NRSC is purely, it feels like, for winning control of the Senate. And I just went back and Googled like the past NRSC chairs, like before Rick Scott, Todd Young, Indiana, Cory Gardner, Roger Wicker, Jerry Morant, John Cornyn, John Ensign, Liddy Dole. I mean, maybe George Allen back in 2004 or five, like was looking to run for president. But all those people, none of them wanted to like run for president or at least felt like serious contenders. So it's like he overshot by trying to like re-engineer the NRC and his image if he is thinking about like higher position one day. Yeah, and you know, the sad part about it all is that, I mean, his term is up after this. So whatever he's done can be kind of dismantled. But if they really did collect data and digital information, I wonder if that is something that he wants to mine and use, or at least it's a good practice in how to collect that sort of database. There are a lot of different things. I think also the fact that Rick Scott bear hugs Trump does not engender him with the uh, McConnell set as well. Yeah. Well, here's another question I have for you on that front. So Shane Goldmacher, I think, wrote the piece in the New York Times you referenced and talked about the like insane cash burn 
the NRSC, according to Shane's piece, collected $181.5 million through July and then spent 95% of it. So what are they actually spending all that money on? I believe, according to his piece, they were spending the money on trying to cultivate potential donors. And the ROI was negative. I mean, they thought that if they spent money to target donors through Facebook ads, text messages, et cetera, that they could make it back. And it just didn't work out. It's like another thing, and and you alluded to this in your piece, and it was in Shane's piece too, is like, I think Liam Donovan gave this quote. And he was like, if Republicans like don't take back the Senate, and again, they need like literally like to net one seat, (laughs) then like people will be fishing around looking for somebody to blame. And so like, like it could, this could be like a pre- just planting the seeds that, you know, that that Rick Scott might be to blame if if they lose. Which is exactly why I need some friends right now. But yes, I think that they're like, I think they're, I think when the story came out about his yacht trip in the middle of uh, August, people were saying, oh, it's his obituary already. And there's, all, the finger pointing is happening. I think it's interesting because you blame Rick Scott, do you blame Mitch McCall? McConnell or do you blame Trump for endorsing candidates who can't win a general, you know? Oh, totally. What's this? What's the phrase? Success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the other thing. If people are starting to sprinkle some some blame ahead of time, it suggests they, you know, they don't necessarily think they're going to lose the Senate. They're just sort of uh, pre-budding what might happen just in case. Because I remember when Trump uh, was going to lose in 2016, Everyone, including Kellyanne Conway, was going on background talking shit about him uh, until they won. That's what I, I've been told that the same. Don't discount Rick Scott. He could he could have a comeback. I think right now, too, a lot of these campaigns yeah. could use some cash and they're getting a little angry. A thousand percent. I mean, time is running out not only to raise money, but to place these ad buys. You got six weeks left and like you're running out of inventory in some places. All right, Tara, thank you so thank much. Thank you. We'll come back to you to keep an eye on the NRSC. Thrilling. (laughs) Thanks, Peter. (laughs) When we come back, Tina Wynn is here with Ben Landy to talk about right-wing Republican Doug Mastriano and the future of the GOP. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with the one and only Tina Wynn. Hey, Tina. Hey, Ben. You and I have talked a lot about Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, in part because that's just such an incredible race. I mean, truly a shit show and, and frankly, quite amusing. Um, but you've also been telling me for weeks that the Pennsylvania race that's really more consequential in many ways is the race for governor, where we have a fringe Republican candidate who clobbered the GOP primary field with some Democratic help, I should add, but is just so laughably extreme that he seems almost certain to lose to the Democratic nominee. So who is Doug Mastriano and why should we care? Doug Mastriano is the GOP candidate for the governor of Pennsylvania, which is exactly why you should care. He was a former state senator prior to the pandemic, and he had some pretty extreme beliefs, such as like a complete abortion ban. But during the pandemic, he became a popular online personality for his live streams from home during the pandemic. He started promoting anti-vax conspiracies. He started promoting Stop the Steal. He ended up at the Capitol on January 6th, where he was videotaped actually crossing the police line. Sounds like a nice guy. Oh, yeah. He also truly and strongly believes that America is a Christian nation and that there's no such thing as the separation between church and state. He has doubled down on his election denialism and 
I would be unsurprised if a lot of shenanigans happen should he win the election. He's down in the polls, but he's not down by as much as I think would feel like a more safe margin. Do you know what the number is right now? Depending on the polls, it's anywhere between 3%, which is within the margin of error, and 11%, which is definitely not. Pennsylvania is a weird state in that there's a lot of ticket splitting and the degree to which the electorate kind of skews more MAGA rather than like traditional Republican means that you're not going to have people vote straight ticket Republicans or Democrats. So that means Dr. Oz is kind of insulated from Mastriano's craziness. And conversely, Mastriano is insulated from Oz's lack of like social MAGA credibility, such as, you know, that one time that he extended empathy towards a trans child. Mastriano seems to perfectly encapsulate a dynamic that you and I have talked about a lot, which is that there continues to be a pretty significant delta between the kind of Republican candidates who are clearing primary fields and the kind that can actually win general elections. That's partly because primary voters themselves tend to be more hardcore, but also because the establishment candidates sometimes split the field, leaving the most radical candidate a path to bulldoze through. I mean, you know, that, that, that's sort of the Trump strategy that we saw in 2016. Was there any kind of effort to stop Mastriano from the GOP establishment class? Oh, my God, absolutely. Uh, he ran against maybe like nine to 15 other kind of mainstream Republicans. And when I say mainstream, I'm not just talking about the, you know, John McCain, Mitt Romney, country club Republican types. The guy who was closest to him was a guy named Lou Barletta, who was one of the first congressmen to endorse Donald Trump back in 2016, when it was wildly unpopular to do so. And the fact that Mastriano was beating him was just like mind blowing to everyone. So there was this concerted effort within the party to encourage people to drop out and allow voters to coalesce behind an alternative that wouldn't have worked in any case because Mastriano got about 43, 44 percent of the vote. I think it was more than the rest of the field combined had. So Mastriano has such a grasp on his grassroots that like I've been hearing that GOP county chairs are trying madly to accommodate him and pivot to ensure that that base stays with them and that they like are tapped into it. But then again, like this is a GOP that censored Pat Toomey for voting to impeach Donald Trump right after the insurrection. So like it's a pretty election denialist crowd up in the GOP base up there. And Mastriano is the purest distillation of that in one very tall, bald, Confederate uniform wearing avatar. You're triggering me a little bit here because it, it really is, to take it back to Trump, the exact same dynamic that we saw in 2016, that you can have a very extreme candidate who can rise to be the nominee with something like 30, 35% of the vote. That's all you need if the rest of the field is divided by other more establishment candidates. We should also say that it sounds like Mastriano is much more extreme than Trump in many ways. But it is interesting here that Mastriano represents precisely the kind of politics that Trump is pushing really hard this election cycle. We've talked a lot about how Trump is potentially leading the party off a cliff in these midterms, which should have been an easy win for the GOP to retake the House and probably the Senate. 
And instead, Trump has supported a bunch of fringe candidates, some who just are bad candidates, have a lot of baggage, like Herschel Walker in Georgia, Dr. Oz, who we talked about, but also Trump's own incessant focus on the 2020 election, denying the outcome, has set the tone for the party in many ways. And it's hard not to see Mastriano as just the logical extension of precisely the kind of messaging Trump has pushed to the fore here. One of the things that people pointed out, though, is that Mastriano, unlike Trump, has been completely reticent, if not completely allergic to talking to any media outlet that is not friendly, that's not nice to him, that's not going to like give him glowing coverage. I spoke to Selena Zito, who's a uh, New York Post columnist, pretty sympathetic to Trump voters, isn't going to like pull a Jim Acosta or CNN on him. And even they were like, no, you're not nice to us. Be nicer to us. The word they actually used was nice. Trump, even though right now he's kind of locked himself in a safe space echo chamber of true social and the occasional cable news hit, Mastriano has just completely iced out everyone. There's no way that he is going to take any questioning or any form of accountability from someone who's not nice to him. And that's either brilliant or a complete snowflake tactic. Yeah, that's a great point. Trump was incredibly hostile to the media, still is. But his genius really was understanding that he needed the media as a foil. He loved talking to the New York Times, in part because he actually wanted um, their respect. He wanted the credibility of appearing on major cable news programs and on the front page of major establishment papers. This new kind of politics that Mastriano is pioneering, which is sort of post-Trump, uber-Trump, over-the-top Trumpism, do you think this is the new direction for the GOP? Or do you suspect that if Mastriano loses by a number of points in November, that the establishment will take some kind of lesson from this and push back harder the next time a Mastriano rises to the top of the field? I think it really depends on how Mastriano performs. Because if this works somehow, against all odds, the GOP is going to be like, okay, cool, there is now a viable pro-Trump, pro-GOP media universe that we can actively use to push get out the vote initiative to make our case to voters and we don't need the mainstream media anymore. If Mastriano loses by a lot, then they're going to start pushing back. But if Mastriano wins or even comes anywhere close, then I think you're going to see some form of official GOP detachment from the mainstream to these MAGA internet sources. Thanks, Tina. Like you said, you've got some new analysis on Mastriano up on Puck.News, which I encourage listeners to check out. Let's do this again next week. Always. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.